now. Welcome to the Limited Slip uh, podcast. We're excited to be recording our very first podcast. Um, it's something that we've been talking about doing for quite some time, and we have finally decided to do it. Uh, this podcast, we're going to uh, talk about a uh, bunch of different things that are all related to the automotive world, from uh, new cars that are coming out to motorsports and anything in between. So we're excited to, to start this journey. And of course, being our very first podcast, we want to start with something very big, which is what, David? Today, we're going to talk about the T50. The T50. Um, the T50. Oh my gosh. Like, this is, this is like maybe the most exciting car to come out in a decade, two decades. I don't know, but I'm, I'm really pumped on this. Yeah, I would say decade. Um, I would put it up there, of course, with the McLaren F1 and with the introduction of the Bugatti Veyron when it first came out. Um, this is the next big thing. Um, so definitely worthy of uh, a full podcast, no question. Right. And I think, I think the next big thing is, is really on point. And, and I'll be interested to see if other manufacturers finally get the philosophy behind the T50 and are able mm -hmm. to implement it. Um, I think that for a long time, this philosophy, and, and for a long time, I mean basically 70s through the 90s, early, uh, the very, yeah, 70s through the early 90s, people kind of thought that this formula was for race cars. Mm -hmm. Not that it was necessarily the formula just for a good car. Um, and I think Gordon Murray really hit the nail on the head, both with the F1 and with the T50 to say, no, this is just what makes good cars. <laughs> I mean, this is what made the Lotus Elan a great car. This is what made the NSX a great car. This is, this is the formula for something that's just a special car to drive. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, we're going to give you the bare minimum, but we're going to make sure that the bare minimum that we're going to give you is the very best of what we can give you. Um, and I think that summarizes what the T50 is. It doesn't have anything that it doesn't need. Uh, it just has everything that it absolutely needs to make it a great driver's car and enhance those few ingredients that it has to the max to give you a, a fantastic car and not only a fantastic car, but even on today's world with the LaFerrari and the P1 and the Senna and the, the 918 give you something that many of us thought that we would never see again, which is a, a car with a V12 naturally aspirated with no sort of um, assistance from electric motors or non-hybrid technology whatsoever. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I mean, the whole idea is that this is, it's almost like a digital vaccine where you have, we live in this digital world now, so, you know, we're here in coronavirus, we, we work from home, everything's over the computer, everything is electronic. And I think as the world has moved in that direction, a little bit of that, a, a lot of that has filtered down into the way that engineers make cars. Yes. Yeah. And here's Gordon Murray coming and saying, I'm going to give you the vaccine to that. We don't need turbos and electric motors and 
right? All of this stuff, which are, which are great engineering solutions, but they're solutions that are solving a problem that you made, right? Yeah. If you start off with a car that's really, the fundamentals are there, you don't need all of that stuff as, you know, quote unquote solutions. Um, and, you know, and his focus is really on lightweight, kind of taken to the extreme um, and, and on the driver. So, yeah, I think the other so, really impressive thing that Gordon Murray in particular does is he has like this really big focus on like the tiny details that he, that he talks about. And, you know, and I, and I think part of it is to say, Hey, look, I did a good job because I think that he made this car as his swan song, as his like masterpiece is Mona Lisa. So he wants to say, Hey, look, look at these pedals. I, I shave however, I forgot however many grams it was off of the pedal design. But like, I think it was 300 grams off uh the pedals and about 800 off uh the gear shifter yeah the gear shifter was actually more interesting to me i i, I mean in all honesty i would have expected him to take to, to take a little bit of weight off of the pedals just because material science is advanced um but the gear shift 800 grams off the gear shift yes i mean 800 grams it's 200 grams short of a kilo right which is it's you know it's considerable off of a gear shift. Off of a gear shift, yes. And even from the pedals, you know, he, Gordon uh, Murray even said that they really, really, really tried their hardest with the F1 to get everything as light as possible with the technology that was available to them at the time. And uh, he was really saying that I, did, I didn't believe that we were able to make the pedals any lighter than what we did with the F1. Um, and then it turns out that we were able to do it 300 grams lighter, which again, it's over a quarter of a kilo lighter than the F1. Right. Um, so this is just one of many, many things that makes this car uh, probably the most important car of the decade for uh, car enthusiasts. Yeah, let's, let's talk about weight a little bit because I'm, I'm with Gordon Murray. My, my, the cars that I like are pretty much the cars that Gordon Murray likes. You know, I would, if I had access to a, you know, one of these early Lotuses in a lawn, like I would daily drive yeah. that thing. Right. I mean, that's, that's like, that's the car, right? Yeah. So he, he likes the same type of stuff that I like. And, and really that comes down to weight. So mm -hmm. let's, let's talk about weight for a second. So what is, the total weight on the T50? Uh, 986 kilos or 2,174 pounds. Yeah, which is, which is like nothing, right? And, and, that's, and that's wet. That's not a dry weight. Yeah. So that's I where think, full tank of gas, fluids, everything. But I think, I think that what he explained was it was everything except the gas. Um, so we do have the engine oil, coolant, um, everything else besides gas is right. already included in that weight. Right. But it's, but it's not like an Italian weight, right? No. no. <laughs> you know, I was, one of the things we'll talk about later is, is this new Ducati, you know, the Superleggera and, and it's like the weight that they give is like without fluids, without a battery, without, without air in the tires. <laughs> yeah. 
it's the Italian uh, weight. This is a road weight. Um, yeah, I mean, under a thousand kilograms, you know, two, you know, 21s, 2,174 pounds. Like this is, this is like nothing. I mean, this is like the weight of a Honda Goldwing. Um, okay, not really, but it's pretty close. <laughs> um, yeah, so we have, it's actually lighter by quite a significant margin than the F1 was. F1 was about 2,500 pounds. And here we are at under 2,200 pounds. This is, uh, it's lighter than a, a new Miata, which is 2,300 pounds. Um, the only thing that, the only car that I could really find that beat it was a Lotus Elise. Um, you know, a Lotus Elise is right at 2,000 pounds. Um, but even like, you, you'd be lucky to find even a 2,000 pound Elise because most of them came with you know, options, touring pack, whatever that added, you know, 100 pounds, 150 pounds onto them. I think, I think the 2000 pound Lotus Elise is pretty much a stripped out Elise. And here, here with the T50, this 2174 pound weight figure, it includes like air conditioning that works, uh, yes. airbags, crash, modern crash structures. Like, I think that it's, you know, you take some of that stuff out and you're going to be right there with the Lotus Elise. And there's a big difference too between the Elise and uh, the T50, one of many. Uh, we have to, we should probably say that the Elise is only has a 1.8 four cylinder engine. And we're talking about a right. naturally aspirated V12. It has eight more cylinders right. than the Elise has. And the, the weight uh, difference is really not that much considering um, how much more engine and performance the car has. Right. But, but the point being that at least like, that's the only car that I can find that, yeah. that yeah. weighs less. And you compare this 20, you know, under 2,200 pound figure to modern supercars, even, even cars that you would think would be lightweight that have uh, carbon tubs, uh, you know, carbon ceramic brakes, uh, everything lightweight that you can think of. And they weigh a lot more. Um, yeah, I mean, even, I mean, what are, what are some examples, right? So a LaFerrari, right? A LaFerrari is almost 3,500 pounds, right? I mean, we're talking yep. more than a thousand pounds difference between a LaFerrari and the T50. That's, that's, yes. that's basically three passengers, three average weight passengers that you're carrying at all times in your car. Yeah. I mean, and, and like, I did, like like seeing seeing the T fifty now I'm like like on like one part of me is like wow that's an amazing achievement that they were able to get the weight that low on the other hand I'm like what the heck was Ferrari doing to make the La Ferrari so heavy right I mean the hybrid stuff yeah but it, you know the hybrid stuff isn't a thousand pounds um I like it's it's really impressive even even the seven twenty S which is kind of the the lightweight modern supercar is mm -hmm. still a thousand pounds heavier, right? 3,161 pounds is what I have. Yeah, that's, that's, that's basically nears makes no difference. A thousand pounds heavier than the T50. That's, yeah. that's what Gordon Murray has, has done. And it's, yes. So I think that part of the reason that, well, two reasons why, um, not everybody will be able to replicate the T50. First of all, is from a cost standpoint. 
uh, one of the biggest benefits I think Gordon Murray has is uh, he is making or he has made this car under the umbrella of his own company. Uh, it's a small company. This is the only car they produce uh, right now. They can make it as good as it can be because, uh, first of all, cost is not an issue for him right now. I don't know how he managed to to do this uh, of uh, saying cost is not an issue. I just want the best that the car can be regardless of cost. That's one. But then also um, uh, the bigger companies, because of now uh, new regulations when it comes to uh, pollution um, and fuel economy, they do need to um, introduce some kind of turbocharged, supercharged or hybrid assisted technology to be able to comply with the regulations that uh, both the EU and the states um, are going to be mandating now and in the future. Um, so to the to the point that we're talking about before, or will any of the manufacturer will do this? Unfortunately, I think the answer is no. Um, just someone like Gordon Murray or a small company will be the ones that were able to achieve something like this. There is no accountants involved in the decision-making of the car, how much money we, we spend on the car, which is also another point that could be thoroughly discussed uh, in the future as far as um, how all the finances affect the, the decisions of a big company. Because at the end of the day, they have to be profitable. That's what they want to do. Uh, right. They're not in, in business to, to just make a pretty car and go bankrupt. They, they have to keep making money. And most of these companies are publicly shared companies. So they have, you know, responsibilities uh, with their shareholders to make sure that they make the money every year. Um, that's not an issue uh, or a concern with, with Gordon Murray, uh, which are all key ingredients to making this magnificent car a reality. Oh, maybe I'm, maybe I'm overly romantic about it, but my impression is that if I was Ferrari, maybe, yeah, maybe Ferrari, but if I'm Lamborghini for sure, um, or, you know, Aston Martin or someone like, you got to think at some point, Hey, if we have all of our cars under, under 3000 pounds, that's going to help our average fuel economy. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that if you came in, someone came in from the top and said, Hey, every time that we re-engineer a part, okay, pedal assembly, right. We're going to come in we're going to make our, our, I, I assume that they have a standard pedal assembly that they share across the line we're going to come in, we're going to cut weight out of this thing. And they do that across the car. Every piece, we're going to start cutting weight out of it. I got to imagine that they're going to be able to get these cars under 3000 pounds. Maybe not. Maybe the drivetrain, maybe they have to go hybrid to get the fuel economy gains, but I just feel like they have to be able to do it. And even, and even if they can't, uh, to that same extent, again, look at the Miata, right? Miata's 2,300 pounds and a great car to drive. Now, obviously the Miata is, is uh, not really high on the power, right? Yes. It's not, right. It's not, it's not something you drive because you want to go, you know, accelerate fast. Um, but the Miata is a great car to drive. The I read, I read a bunch of stuff on this. I'm, I'm a big Mazda fan, as you know. So one of the, one of the things that I really like about Mazda is that they have, they actually have um, scientists who study, 
they have some weird Japanese word for it. I can't recall it at, at the right now, but they have scientists who study like the mechanical interaction between the driver and the car. And they come in and they do, you know, and they study like, okay, what's the perfect angle for the pedal? What's the perfect angle for, um, you know, the gear shift lever, right? And, you know, and they have to, you know, there's a lot of science to that because everyone's different, right? But they come yeah. in and they, and they study that with a lot of a thought to say, how can we make this car better based on the design of how the driver interacts with it? I don't think anyone else is doing that. I mean, I think, I think that they have some ergonomic issues that they, you know, they come in and they work through and they have ergonomics engineers who say, okay, we're going to make the seat comfortable or whatever. But I don't think they're actually sitting down and saying, okay, if we change the pedal by, you know, two degrees this direction, it's going to provide more response to the driver. I think Gordon Murray is doing that. I think Mazda is doing that. And I think that everyone would benefit from that, from that philosophy at the very least. I mean, um, I'm not sure if anybody else is doing it, but uh, um, if anybody else is doing it, I would, I would venture saying that McLaren will probably give some thought to it as well as push. Um, any of the newer McLarens or uh, any of the newer Porsches, everybody, you know, any reviews that you read about it or watch on YouTube, everybody says that they're extremely comfortable in the driving position. So they, they have given, besides of being an amazing performance vehicles, they're also very comfortable to just drive in a relaxed manner. If you wanted to do long distance driving, right. you can totally do it. Um, and in order for a car to be comfortable in shorter and especially longer trips, you do have to give some good thought about where everything sits. Where is the steering wheel? Where are you sitting? How is the seat? Uh, where is the, the gear shifter? Um, you do have to put some thought into that to make sure that it does tick those boxes um, of being a comfortable GT car as well as a great high performance car. Right. What do you what do you think about the central driving position? Um, I've never driven a car with a central driving position besides go karts. Um, I think it's great. I think it, it's. Let me put it this way: nobody who has ever driven or owned an F one has ever complained about the central driver position. Uh, if anything, <laughs> they've actually said it's actually quite nice. Right. It do, it does take some use to because of course you're either uh, used to driving on the left side of the vehicle or on the right side of the vehicle depending on where you live, and you're it's so many years of always driving on the left on the side and knowing exactly how to position the car because of where you're sitting that when you drive in the center it does take some getting used to um, on how to position the car but that said. Um, it's something that everybody who has experienced that from what I've read and uh, seen on videos, everybody says it's actually quite, quite natural to make that progression to the center driver position. On top of that, um, another great advantage that you had with the F1 and again with the T50 is that because you do have that center driving position, you're able to have two additional passengers with you. Right. And actually, be not so much on the F1 when it comes to comfort, but from what we've seen on videos on the T50, you can actually see that there's enough room for them to be 
comfortably positioned. Of course, they're not going to be sitting like in the in the back seat of an S class or a Rolls Royce. But uh, for being a high performance car, no other car right now in the market besides the F1 can tell you, oh yeah, you can drive it and you can take two friends with you. And I've seen some pretty tall people get in the in those uh, side seats. Yeah. Uh, and which other car gives you that? Yeah. No other car is, uh, is able. And even if, um, if you don't want to take people with you, uh, if you just want to go for yourself, um, you still have plenty of room for storage. If you want to just throw a couple of bags there, um, you, have, you have that room. Um, so whether you're carrying people or not, it's a win-win situation. Yeah, I think one of the big things that, that's an improvement over the F1 is the ingress and egress, getting into the driver's seat. Because in the F1, you had like the central, there's two, um, what do they call them? But like the, the main structure of the, of, on the floor yes. is right there. And so you have this kind of you know, big bump that you have to get over in order to get into yes. And, and he was able to rearrange the carbon tub to make it significantly stronger, but also to not have that so you don't have to climb over anything in order to get into the car. Right. The F1 uh, was um, more uh, in the style of the Mercedes Gullwing uh, as far as getting in and out. Right. Um, that has been, like you said, has been resolved or changed completely with the T50. Um, that really, the, I think the way that we should look at the T50 is, um, in my opinion, what if if Gordon Murray were to do another F1, what what would he do? And I think this is, you know, the F1 Mark II. It's it's better in every way uh, that he can conceive it. And that's what he has given us with the technology that we now have 20, 30 years after the, uh, the F1 came out. Right. I, I think that it looks good too. I don't know. I, it, is, it is a very simple design. It is. From, uh, the, from the front is a very simple design. From the rear is uh, unlike anything we've seen. Um, and, yeah, yeah. And, I, and I think for a lot of people, it would take some get it used to that look uh, of the big fan in the back. Right. I, I like it though. I mean, I think, man, I, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm too much, of, too much of a fanboy. I like pretty much everything about it. I think it looks great. I think it's a timeless design. And I think, that, I think that the timeless design is a pretty important part of Gordon Murray's philosophy too, because it feels like, it feels like he's in, you know, when you listen to his interviews on the car, he feels like an artist more than an engineer. He's like, I've been working on cars for 50, you can even see it in the name, right? I've been working on cars for 50 years, hence T50. And, and this is like the pinnacle of what I or any, anyone else can do design-wise. Um, you know, and it's like his, it's his masterpiece, like I said before. And here he is, and he was, he was kind of alluding to this in, in an interview I was reading. He said, to the effect of like, I could have made a, you know, some mega hybrid, you know, like the P1 or LaFerrari and, you know, I, like, I, like I could have done that, but where would that have left his legacy? Right. Yeah. Um, he could have, he could have designed any type of car that he wanted with any type of philosophy that he wanted. People would have went to buy it because it's, it's Gordon Murray. It's going to be good. Um, yeah. 
but he chose to go this analog route. And I think that, I think one, I think that that's his philosophy on cars and that's what he cares about. But I think two, I do think that this really is his statement of, I want my legacy, my legacy to be this. I want it to be, I created the ultimate analog driver's car full stop. Um, he basically came on and uh, stole BMW's tagline. It's really right. the ultimate driving machine. Right. Yeah, it is. Yeah. 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 Um, let's see. What else do we need to talk about with this? Uh, well, let's, let's, let's talk about the engine for a second, I guess, because yes, this is, this is the engine that everybody wants. This is the engine that everyone should be making. <laughs> it is. Uh, and if you haven't seen uh, pictures of it, um, don't stop listening to the podcast, but open a tab on Google and uh, just look at the engine because uh, that engine, even as wonderful as it is inside the car, it is as equally wonderful just standing outside as something to look at um, and just have in your garage or in your man cave as a piece of art because it really is that beautiful. Yeah, it, it is really, it is really beautiful. And his, his uh, philosophy behind the creation of the engine. So it's a, it's a 3.9 liter naturally aspirated V12 um, is really modeled off of the early Italian V12s from, you know, Ferrari and Lamborghini primarily. Um, yep. Yeah. Even, even 65 degrees uh, V angle. And it is, it's pretty powerful, right? So 3.9 liters again, naturally aspirated. And you're getting 654 horsepower at 12,000 RPM, um, yep. which is motorbike territory. Yeah, yeah. And this is the highest specific output naturally aspirated engine uh, ever, I believe. Yep. Um, to put this in the perspective, you have. I mean, so what's the other really great naturally aspirated engine? You know, Ferrari 458 Speciale is the one that comes to mind to, for me, and that's that's 132 horsepower per liter. Um, the T50 has 167 horsepower per liter. Right. I mean, this is this is nuts. I mean, it's not uncommon to see that that number with turbocharged engines. No. But but it's not it's not uncommon to see them with two things: turbocharged oil, any kind of force induction, and with a much bigger displacement. Right, and even, even mod, and, I'm, and this is strictly modern. I mean, you go back 20 years, and you weren't even seeing very many turbocharged engines that were above 100 horsepower per liter, and here we are at almost 170. Oof. Yeah. Uh, he, did, he, did, he does say that it's um, almost three times as responsive as the engine in the F1, which, I have to say is kind of the gold standard in responsive engines. Yes. I want to say that the F1 um, was about 12,000 RPMs per second. It can rev up, up to 12,000 RPMs per second. Uh, as you know, this engine was uh, designed by the uh, wizards over at Cosworth uh, with decades of experience in racing and engine uh, fabrication. And one of the requirements that Gordon Murray had is I wanted to be more responsive than the F1, which was already a very difficult task to do. Even Cosworth at the beginning said, 
we don't i'm not even sure we're going to be able to do it we'll give it a, a crack but uh, uh we'll give it a best shot but we don't know if it's going to be possible right uh, well it turns out that they made it three times as responsive and even gordon murray in his own words he said you know he was shocked when he heard that because he was not expecting it to be that much more responsive because he already knew that the f1 uh, was extremely responsive and to go above and beyond that was going to be a huge challenge. wonder what the engine internals are made out of. Like it has to weigh, the, the pistons have to weigh nothing. I don't Nothing. Yeah. Uh, I'm excited to see once the, those specs uh, get released uh, to see uh, more, more details as far as materials. Uh, but without question, it has to be top of the line. Uh, we're talking titanium uh, materials of that kind uh, um, of, of, um, a structure to be able to offer the, the power, the light wetness, but then also to be able to offer the reliability, uh, right. because that's another interesting point that right now we, we're not sure, uh, time will tell, um, but how reliable is this going to be, um, not to discredit Gordon Murray in any way, shape, or form, because I think the guy is a genius and there's no two ways about it. But one of the things that he wanted to do with the T50 was he wanted to do as British as possible. Right. And well, we, we do know that um, British are not the best ones when it comes to reliability. Well, they're not famous for it, that's for sure. Yeah, so it, it's going to be interesting to see as time goes by how... Um, the reliability of this vehicle is yeah uh, because even you know the f1 uh, well it was powered by a bmw engine um so uh, but then again these are also cars that uh, at least the f1 they're not cars that you put a whole lot of miles uh, in them and whether you put the mileage or not uh, you get them serviced anyway right um, so. Yeah, I, th I mean, I feel like I feel like Cosworth is really, you know, it's quality engineering, and I, you know, their their reputation is on the line a little bit with this. So I, I don't yeah. feel like they're gonna take any unnecessary risks. But also, every time you push engineering to its limit, you know, failures are a possibility. So yeah. it will be interesting but to see if this ends up being a reliable engine. I, I, I also tend to lean towards. It's lightweight. The stresses on the engine are going to be less because of that. And also, yes, it, is, it is more simple than, you know, it's competition, right? I mean, it, this is undoubtedly yes. a more simple engine than the LaFerrari's engine. Yeah, well, what they basically did, right, is they took a proven concept from the 60s, the 50s, 60s, and 70s, which is that typical V12 Italian design that came out to be quite reliable for the time. I mean, even uh, Lamborghinis of the time with the Miura and uh, the Espada, um, they also had a similar configuration. They turned out to be very reliable cars um, for the period. You compare them today, not so much, but for the time, they were considered actually quite reliable engines. And they just took that formula and then said, okay, well now let's use 21st century engineering and 21st century materials and see what we can do right and um, but to speak as far as the confidence that i think most of us could have in cosworth besides uh, gordon murray signing off on that project with them which i think 
that speaks volumes on what Gordon Murray, Murray thinks about Cosworth. We have to remember also that uh, probably uh, the most or one of the most reliable manufacturers at the time, Mercedes, they hired Cosworth to put an engine in the 190 uh, series that they had. Um, I, from personal experience, I've never driven a 190 Cosworth, but I have driven a couple of 190s and family members have owned 190s when I was growing up and they were by far the most reliable cars they had. And Mercedes saying, you know what, let's actually go to Cosworth to have them put a engine in our vehicle for our sports saloon. I think it also speaks volumes of Cosworth because here we have Mercedes, the pinnacle of engineering at the time when it comes to reliability and comfort. And they say, no, 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 we're not gonna do the engines ourselves, even though they probably have the capability, we're gonna trust the guys over at Cosworth to deliver that engine for us. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. And I, I, I'm not as familiar as I wish I was with the, with the Ford Cosworth engines. Yeah, same thing. They've been on the Escort. Um, I can't remember which one was the other one. Um, it'll come to me in a minute, but yeah. Yeah, but I don't. I don't think that they're, you know, unreliable engines by any means. No. So that's a that's a good point with the one ninety. Um, yeah. I think one of the other interesting things about the engine is that it, and I think that this is something that will take off, um, and you'll see more manufacturers. Uh, start to do here in the near future is it has no belt driven accessories actually it yeah. has no belts because all the timing and everything is in the, the oil sump is gear driven but it has no belt driven accessories um everything is done electrically so what it does have is it has the you know this uh, starter generator on it um which powers everything so like the um the ac is is driven electrically, right? Yeah, uh, I think which according to Gordon Murray, now it actually works <laughs> yeah. uh, compared yeah. to the F1. Yeah, because it's not driven by a belt, right? I mean, good luck yeah. getting a, an AC to work on an engine that, you know, revs to you know, 12 and a half thousand RPMs. Um, yeah. And I guess one of the interesting things is although it, it doesn't, the starter generator doesn't add power to the engine, so it's not a hybrid, but it can decouple for a short period of time. They have a they have a separate battery that can you know use that can charge the AC and whatever accessories. But it can decouple for a short period of time. The engine can decouple from the starter generator, and that gives it supposedly a forty nine horsepower boost to help it reach its top speed. I think that's a pretty cool that's a pretty cool little feature too. It is. Because it's actually interesting uh, on the the train of thought that um, Cosworth and Gordon Murray wanted to follow. Because we live in an age where the 918 and LaFerrari is, the more assistance we give it, the better the car will be. Let's just throw batteries and electric motors and turbochargers and superchargers. Let's just throw more and more and more. And this is... Uh, the philosophy that they went with is the opposite. Let's take out as much as we can to let the engine do the work that it needs to do and nothing else, um, which is also a very refreshing concept. Right. Yeah, yeah no, I, and yeah, absolutely. And I think that that philosophy kind of continues over into the aerodynamics. Um, yes. The aerodynamics on the car are actually really simple. Um, 
the main, all of the aerodynamic function for downforce is really done on the underbody. Um, it's a ground effects car, but it's a true ground effects car. I mean, you have like these kind of early ground effects cars where they have the side skirts and, and what it's doing is it's trying to seal all, as much air under the car as it can. And that ended up being kind of, um, you know, I mean, it ended up getting banned from motorsports. One of the reasons that it got banned from motorsports, I think that these bans, they, they kind of get a bad rep where we just assume that it's because, oh, this car was going faster and so somebody else got it banned. But yeah. these, these early ground effects cars, there was good reason to ban them because if you got any uh, air bubbles underneath the car, uh, you know, pressure bubbles, I guess is more accurate term. You can, you know, you, you get like an instant loss of downforce and that's dangerous, right? Which we actually, I don't know if you've seen it, I'm sure you have, and uh, I'm sure many of the listeners that would join us have seen this too, but it happened actually, there's a very famous video of a Mercedes, I want to say it was a CLK. Um, the CLK GTR? Went, yeah, the CLK GTR that, that just went through that. Right. And, and, uh, and, it, and, and if that doesn't show you exactly why it got banned, then I have no idea why uh, you wouldn't uh, see why it wasn't a good idea to just do it. Right. Yeah. And that's, yeah, I mean, you know, Mark Weber, you know, did the, the somersault at Le Mans and that, and that, yeah, and that's kind of the same idea. That's, that's a, that's a, a little bit different because that's almost more to do with the aero balance, mm. but it's the same idea of you get this, you know, this pressure bubble and it yeah. affects the aerodynamics of the car and, you know, and here you are flying through the air at, you know, 220 miles an hour down, you know, the Mulsanne Strait. Um, so that's that's one of the that's one of the reasons why it's you don't see very many road cars that are totally dependent on ground effects. Um, I, I think that in part it's a safety issue, right? I mean, it would have been easy for someone twenty years ago to just you know strap a giant fan on a car and some side skirts and say, "Look, it has all of this downforce." That wouldn't really be a, a wonderful idea. Um, so what the way that the T fifty works is it basically has a really effective diffuser and it has a fan on the back, right? Like a fan car, like the, like the problem um, or like the shop all before it where the fan is interacting with the air that's flowing through the diffuser. And it's basically mm -hmm. moving the stall point. So right. you can get a really, you can, you can make a really aggressive diffuser, but the air is going to stall under it and it's not going to work. But the fan can move that stall point forward and, and kind of help the air follow the diffuser so that it gets a lot of downforce off of it. And this is basically free downforce. You have no drag or very, very little drag associated with that. Really, really clever the way that he does that, but he, he can also push the stall point back forward and force the air to not follow the diffuser. <clears throat> yeah. And so you can, you can use the fan it's not sucking the car to the ground like a vacuum, but what it's doing is it's using the fan to adjust the downforce of the diffuser underneath. And the other really big benefit of this is that the, the point of where, you know, I was talking about aero balance, you can, this type of uh, ground effects really has one central point where, not point, but one central area where it's creating the downforce. Right. And so you think like a rear wing. Okay. Well, the rear wing is creating downforce on the rear wing, which means on the you, rear have, wing. Yeah. 
yeah, it's right on the very back of the car, which means you have to have an equal amount of downforce at the front of the car. But right. the fifty has one central low pressure part right in the you know the middle of the car. The the weight I assume that it's really close to where the weight balance of the car is, and that's where all the downforce is actually happening. And so you end up with not just a lot of downforce, but you end up with an inherently balanced car as well, where right. the balance isn't changing based on your speed. And I think that is that is just incredibly clever. It's, it's going to make it uh, an extremely stable car at high speed. So it should be very interesting to see what they're able to achieve as far as top speed uh, with this car. But I'm, I'm pretty sure that whatever speed they achieve, everybody who will try to achieve that speed will say, you know what, it was actually a very stable car all the way through. Yeah, I mean, I don't think, I actually don't think that it's going to produce an immense amount of downforce. I don't think it's going to be like a Dodge Viper oh, no. ER. Um, but just because the balance is, well, the weight is very balanced and the downforce is very balanced, it's going to make the car fairly stable. Right. Yeah. And I, yeah, and I think that the amount of drag, I think, is going to be really, really low. The, the, the fan also, it does this neat trick where it sucks air that's, that's following the top of the car. And it's able to reduce the drag by that and create kind of this, it's kind of the same idea as you see like the long tail cars, especially like the, the Le Mans cars from the eighties and nineties. They have, you know, they, they kind of have a little bit shorter wheelbase, but then they have a really long tail. Long tail. Yep. It's kind of creating that same idea of, you know, how can we reduce drag without losing downforce? And that's one of the answers, but the fan is able to suck air from the top of the car as well as from the bottom and to create this kind of virtual long tails is what Gordon Murray calls it. Really neat trick. I think that it's going to have extremely low drag and, you know, he hasn't talked about the top speed number, but I think it's going to actually be really high. I think it may be gearing limited, right? I mean, maybe he didn't gear the car to have a high top speed, but if he did, I think we could see bold claim here, but we might be, be seeing a Bugatti Veyron numbers, but. It could very well be. Um, another important thing, not speaking about gearing, it, I want to say that he's going to follow, or I want to say that he, I heard him say in one of the interviews that he, he wants to follow um, kind of a similar pattern that he did with the F1, which is kind of shorter gearing at first, but then your sixth gear is actually going to be quite tall. Um, his end goal with the F1 and having a, a sixth a gear being quite tall was not so much of, well, I just need a tall gear to be able to achieve those top speeds that we want to achieve. But it was more with the mindset of, uh, I just wanted to be a great GT car. Right. When you take it on a long distance, you know, RPMs are low and it's comfortable to drive. And I think that he will follow the same philosophy with the uh, T50. Uh, I'm betting that he will have a taller gear as your final gear, um, which not only will give you the comfort, but it will also give you uh, the room that you need to achieve those, those uh, top speeds. But speaking of gearing and transmissions, we haven't actually mentioned something that is also quite unique and important about this car. It's a manual transmission. Right. Yeah. I guess. Um, yeah. I guess we did. We did fail to mention that. Very, yes. Very important. Uh, Six-speed manual transmission um, was not the first choice, according to uh, Gordon Murray. Uh, he was, uh, more, he, he didn't want to do a double clutch either. Um, he wanted to do a single clutch, um, possibly with 
with a clutch pedal for you to get going on first gear and then just pedal shifters for everything after that. Um, yeah, I think he wanted like a sequential, like, like they have in the WRC cars. Have you seen? Correct. Yeah, which are, which are really fast, right? Really fast, really fast, yes. Yeah. Um, but um, according to him, what happened was after um, making the final decision, one of the, I think, genius things that Gordon Murray did, not only when it comes to the gearbox, but with the rest of the car, is he did want to get customer feedback. Um, right. So he went to certain customers, which I'm sure they owned or have owned an F1 in the past, and they are somewhat close to him, and they were pretty much already, whatever he did, they were going to buy anyway. Uh, he did want to get some customer feedback, and the grand majority of them said, "We well, it's great, uh, that sequential gearbox that you're thinking about putting in, but what we really would like is a manual, uh, which makes it even more of a driver's car. Uh, and then looking at everything in, in context, it turns out that the manual was not, it's not only the choice transmission for car enthusiasts, but it's also a lighter transmission than a dual clutch or um, um, a sequential. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're saving at least a hundred pounds over a sequential and, you know, and probably at least 200 pounds over a, over a dual a clutch. Double clutch. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. This is actually, yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit embarrassed that we forgot to talk about this earlier because to be in all honesty, I wouldn't be fawning over the car like I am if it didn't have a manual transmission. Um, you know, dual clutches are great and for what they do, but for a car that's focused on the driver, yeah. you know, like there's some people who disagree with me and they're all wrong because the only way to go is with the manual transmission. No, there is. I mean, it, it, it just also... Um, it points. It puts into context of the main reason why this car was created and for who it was created. Right. You, know, you, you buy you buy a Lambo, you buy a Ferrari. Uh, sure, you buy it for the performance, but a lot of the times you also buy it because uh, of the strikes, uh, the looks, the striking looks that it has. But then also, it's a social status symbol. You know, right. you want to be seen in a Ferrari or a Lambo, and and people will think, oh, you have money. Yeah. Whoever's going to buy the T50. Um, will be able to buy many Lamborghinis and Ferraris for the same price. Uh, they choose not to because they don't care about the status symbol that the car may give them. They just want to experience the best driving car possible. Right. Um, and uh, we haven't seen the T50 in person, but I'm sure that if you see one in person and you compare it with a Lambo or with a, with a, a Ferrari, uh, you'll see, you know what, it's not as striking to look at. And people may even call it, uh, it's a bit boring uh, to look at compared to all the other ones, but who cares? That's not what the car was designed to be. It's not, if you think the car is boring, uh, it's simply not the car for you. And that's great. It wasn't designed for you and you should probably never buy it, even well, if you had the money. It's, and it's timeless, right? Like it's never going to be, you know, you buy, I think one of the reasons you'd buy, a, you know, a brand new Ferrari is you want it to be the fastest, right? You want to, you want those bragging rights to say, this is, this is the newest and the best. And I think that's one of the main reasons why they buy it. That's, that's why Ferrari and McLaren and everyone has such a fast development cycle. I mean, they come out mm -hmm. with cars every, you know, five years, right? They could go 10 yeah. years, but they don't because customers who are buying these in large part new are, they're saying, I, I have to have the newest thing and I'm willing to spend money for it. And they're willing to buy the newest thing every five years. 
that's yeah. that's one of the things. But the, you don't you don't buy a T fifty for that. You buy a T fifty because yeah. it's its quality is going to be timeless, right? The the things that make it great, they're not going to change. So, you know, and they're not going to be overcome either in the future, right? I mean, I maybe someone will make a better driver's car. I don't even know that that matters because this is already like the bar is already so high that you're going to enjoy it no matter what. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's it's definitely a a a numbers and a driver's car is not a car that um, you know will strike you the first time you see it for non-car guys. Right. No. Uh, and that, and that's fine. Not it wasn't designed for those people fast. anyway. Because we have to remember too that uh, I don't know exactly what percentage of uh, this group of people falls into, but there's a decent sized percentage of people who buy Ferraris and Lambos. That they're not car guys. Right. They just buy them because it, they look cool and they project this image that I am a successful person and I have money. And, and that's all they want. That's all they want from the car. And, you know, those cars fit their needs perfectly. Uh, this is not the car for them. Thank uh, goodness. Gordon Murray has said that he met almost all of the buyers for the F1 and he's met everyone. So as at the, so they're only making a hundred of these, they made 106 F1s. They're only making a hundred T50s. Um, and 25 uh, race uh, editions or race versions of them. Yeah. Yeah. And 25 race, race editions. And he said that he's at the time of launch, which has been a little bit ago now, um, yeah. it's pre-sold 70, 75 of them basically. Yeah. And he had talked to every customer, right? He, that's, I guess, one of the benefits of spending all that money is you get to talk to Gordon Murray and, and Gordon Murray is conscious of the consumers and he wants their feedback. Um, I don't think that Gordon Murray is going to go around selling these cars to just anybody either. I think that he, no. wants, he wants buyers who care, who are going to use the car, who are going to enjoy it and appreciate it for what it is. Um, yeah, so I don't think he's just selling it to anybody. And you know what's interesting too about uh, the difference in, in buyers when it comes to the T50, and I'm going to compare it now with the limited editions or the high-end editions of uh, the Porsche 911. Uh, I have no idea why, um, but it is a well-known fact that um, reselling Porsches has become a very profitable business. And right. a lot of people, they just want a, an allocation so they can just flip it. Um, and Porsche has actually been working on tracking down these people and say, hey, you know, it's not cool that you do these things. Uh, I, I guess legally they're allowed to do it, but it's just not cool that they're just buying an allocation and then just flipping it to make some extra cash. Uh, that's not going to happen with the T50. Nobody who's going to buy a T50 decided to buy the allocation just to to flip it i mean who knows maybe there's a one or two guys but i want to say that the vast majority of them they will just buy them to keep them and not to keep them for a few months or a year they're going to keep them for a while yeah uh, they're going to enjoy the car for a while um, yeah this is this is definitely a keep forever type of car yeah. yes and not only um it's going to be a a keep forever type of car because of what it offers in the market out there today, because there's no other car like this right now. If, if, if we want to compare a car, say, okay, what's the closest competitor to the T50? Well, there really isn't one. Uh, it, it's in a league of its own. And I think that just because of that, it's more of an incentive for those people to say, you know what, there's nothing else out there that can come close to it. 
there's nothing else out there that will probably come close to it in the near future. So therefore I'm going to keep it. And all it's going to do is uh, the value of the car is just going to go up and up and up. And it's going to be not only probably the best car you've ever driven, but it's probably going to be one of the best investments you'll ever make. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably true. I mean, I have, I have a hard time imagining given the rarity that it doesn't meet or maybe even eclipse the value of the F1. Yeah. Um, I think that in some time it may actually, I know we've had this conversation before, not on the podcast, but I know we've had this conversation in the past uh, that I'm a believer that I think with time, the T50 will uh, actually be worth more than the F1. Yeah. And I, I've kind of, I've kind of gone back and forth on that because one of one issue is I don't think that, I don't think Le Mans is going to let the T50 come and race. Right. No. Um, and so I don't think that it'll have the, you know, wins at Le Mans like the F1 does. Um, but I'm, I'm being swayed by you more and more that it, that it probably will end up getting, end up being more valuable because I think that it's a better car in every way. Right. It is. And not only in, in every way, well, in every way is better, but I think that one of the main reasons why I think that the, the price of this car will, will be higher than, than the F1 is it's not only a better version of the F1, it's also it's going to be cheaper to run than the F1. Uh, yeah. And I think that's one of the, if only, it's one of the very few problems that we have with the F1 is how expensive it is to just keep the car running, whether you drive it or not. Uh, it's extremely expensive to keep the car running, which is one of the things that it's not going to be that way in with the T50, starting with something as simple as the tires, you know, the, the F1 tires were bespoke to the F1. You can't get any other tire that will fit the wheel of the F1. It has to be that specific tire and that's it. There's no other ways about it. Um, this time around, uh, they decided to just go with a tire that was already in the market with the size that was already in the market. Um, they went with Michelin's of course, uh, which I do believe it's they're the best tire uh, manufacturer in the world. Yeah, agreed. Um, yeah, at least for now. At least for now, yeah. Um, they went with them with the standard size, standard dimensions, which is just going to drive the, the price of the upkeep of the car down, which I think it's going to entice a lot of people who want to get into the T50 uh, in the future. Yeah. Uh, we don't know exactly yet how the, the maintenance is going to be in this car. And what I mean, how it's going to be as far as not only service intervals, but as well as where do you take it to get service? Yeah, that is that is a question. It's not like there's going to be, you know, a GMA Gordon Murray Automotive dealership on every block. Right. Yeah. What what's going to be the the procedure to take it uh, to get it serviced? It's probably going to be very similar to the F1. I mean, like you said, they they Gordon Murray doesn't have shops all over the world, so you'll just have to get it shipped. Yeah. Uh, to get it serviced by the manufacturer. But then again, if you have a three million dollar car getting it shipped to the manufacturer is not going to be a cost that you're going to be suffering about. Well, and I, and I mean, what other cars are you going to have? Okay. Well, if you have a Carrera GT, there's only a couple of dealerships in the States that'll service a Carrera GT anyways. Right. And you're yeah. talking, you're, you're talking, I think what will end up being similar costs is send your Carrera GT to a dealership to get the engine pulled out to change your oil as shipping your T50 to you know, I imagine they'll have at least one service station in the States, you know, shipping it to wherever in the States is, 
you know, that's not even close to the same cost as having the engine pulled out for service. So, yeah. Yeah. Speaking of service too, um, I want to say I heard this uh, on the interview that Gordon Murray had with, um, who was it? Uh, Harry from Harry's Garage. If anybody who's listening to us uh, is not subscribed to Harry's Garage or his other channel, which is about his farm, you should subscribe to both. I love his farm uh, channel. <laughs> yeah, love so, it. Harry, I know that you're not listening to us, but if uh, one day you do, we're giving you um, free advertising and we're happy to do it because we think that like, your channels are awesome. Yeah. Uh, but that's beside the point. But I think uh, what uh, one of the things that Gordon Murray was saying when he was having a conversation with Harry is that one of the things that he wants when it comes to the engine is uh, he wants the engine to last well over 100,000 miles. Um, so even if uh, the engine will need a engine out service, it'll probably won't happen until you go over 100,000 miles, which uh, in on an everyday car, you know, service uh, every 100,000 miles, it's kind of the norm nowadays, you know, for many things. Um, but in a car that gives this type of performance that revs this high, um, it's also um, an achievement itself. Yeah, and I, I actually don't think that, I think that there will be several examples of these with 100,000 miles on them in the future. I don't think, I don't think that the drivers are going to, the buyers are going to necessarily keep them tucked away like they do a lot of other cars. I think they're going to get used. So. Hopefully, yeah, yeah. And what's going to be interesting too, uh, and this you know time will tell, is how much will mileage affect the value of these cars? And I don't think it will. Have, I mean, of course, it will have an effect. You're going to pay the same amount of money for a T50 with 150,000 miles at one with 20,000 miles right. or 10,000 miles. But I think that the the difference in pricing is not going to be as big as with um, other of the big cars that we've seen in the past. Yeah, uh, partly because of the rarity of the car, you know. Sure, yeah. it's a hundred thousand miles, but there's only a hundred of them. So what are you gonna do? If right. you want one, there's there aren't that many that you could pick from. Right, and I don't think they're gonna come up for sale hardly ever either. Exactly. So. Yeah. 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 With this, it's just a matter of owning uh, the best car ever made by one of the best designers in the world, and mileage is a minor factor that you probably won't even consider. Of course, you'll want to make sure that the car has been properly serviced. But again, I don't think that's going to be an issue with this car because people who buy this car will make sure that the car will be serviced whenever it needs to be serviced. Yeah, I agree. Um, a couple other things that make the car interesting. Um, you know, manual steering, I think is... A, yes. So it does have, a, it does have a, an electric assist under 10 miles an hour for parking. Right. Speeds. But it, but otherwise, it you know decouples. It's a manual steering rack. Um, that's that's it's all hydraulic. Yeah. Um, and also, I think that there's a lot of. I think it's interesting that there's a lot of focus placed on having soft springs, right? So yes. So one thing that people um, maybe don't realize is that softer springs actually gives you more traction. Um, a lot of performance cars these days want to, they want to have really hard springs so they can have a higher aero load. Um, and also I think, especially those Germans, they're, uh, you know, they, they, they think that buyers think that hard springs means faster car, better handling car. Not true, right? 
the only reason you have hard springs is because you want to have more downforce. More downforce, yeah, and you need the spring to accommodate that weight. Right. And but it makes it for a much stiffer ride. Right. And, and a lot of the times, because you're using a harder spring, you don't have as much travel because you're using a harder spring. Right. Uh, but here, here with the T50, uh, it's supposedly going to have soft springs like on par with an Alpine A110, which is pretty, which is a pretty soft, you know, softly sprung car. And I think that's going to give it a lot of traction. Um, I think it'll also make it a lot more comfortable, obviously, to drive. Yeah. Uh, and that, that combined with the, the tires aren't super aggressive. They, they have a sidewall. Um, I think that it's going to actually drive really great. Um, yeah. One, one surprise, one, one thing that I'm surprised that with the decision that he made is with the wheels. I would have assumed that he would have gone with the carbon fiber wheels. Um, I'm a little bit surprised that he went with forged, forged alloy wheels with that. And he, he does address that. Um, he says that that was- I just can't remember why it was. Well, I, I think that one of the main reasons, or at least that he said was, um, the, you don't want a, a carbon fiber wheel to fail because an aluminum wheel will fail in that it'll get, it'll, it'll deform, Bend. but a carbon yeah. fiber wheel, when carbon fiber fails, it comes it apart. Shatters. Yeah. Um, so it has this catastrophic failure pattern. And as an engineer, he was like, you know, I just don't like that. I don't think it's good material for wheels. I, I don't know though. I mean, I, I, you know, I understand that, that point. Okay. You have a car that's going to probably with some regularity end up going over 200 miles an hour. You don't want, you know, you don't want a carbon fiber wheel to fail, but they're not uncommon in other areas. You know, there's plenty of manufacturers yeah. who make and sell carbon fiber wheels now. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, speaking of that, I guess we're moving on into the section of surprises. Um, a surprise for me uh, was, which it's probably the only thing I didn't like about the T50 is having um, the uh, controls for your wipers and turn signals in, embedded within the steering wheel itself. No stocks, uh, which as we know, this is something that Ferrari has been doing for years. They've been pioneered by Ferrari for years. Um, I think it works great on a race car, but on a GT car where you actually go around roundabouts and corners and everything else, I just don't like not having stocks where I can just turn them on and off for the turn signals. Because the problem, of course, especially with the turn signals, is when you're going around a roundabout or a turn, well, the, the turn signal button is not where it usually is. It now has moved. And it's, even if you only have 180 degrees turn on your steering wheel, well, if you want to go left, you actually have to press right or vice versa. Right. Um, I, I agree with that. I, I don't feel like stocks are actually that big of an issue. I, I understand what, where he's coming from. I don't want the driver to have to take their hands off the off the wheel, et cetera, et cetera. But also remember, this is a manual transmission car. You do have to take your hand off the wheel. Exactly, and not only that, if I may add to that too, uh, Gordon Murray was um, uh, seriously considering having paddle shifters. Right. So. Yeah, and you know, I don't, I don't know about you, Borja, but for me, I don't have to take my hand all the way off the wheel to operate the turn signals on my cars. I, you know. Same way, yeah. Um, so I was a little bit surprised by that as well. That's not maybe the way I would have gone, but 
Yes. Because it does make sense that you don't want to take your hands off the wheel when you're trying to beat the speed record and you're going over 250 miles an hour. But then again, if you're going 250 miles an hour, I don't think you're going to be using your turn signal a whole lot. You're just going straight. Um, so um, there's no need to take your hands off the wheel at that point. Right. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. The other, the other big complaint that I have, and this is more of a selfish one, is I, I wish you would make more of them. You know, I... <laughs> I like you just want the price to go down so you can afford one that's that's exactly right like i want to be able yeah. to have one of these one day and you know if there's a hundred of them you know maybe maybe one day i win the lottery or something but you know don't see it happening i i wonder if he's i wonder if gordon murray automotive is going to produce uh more cars i know they've been talking about a quote-unquote affordable car that's kind of you know, follows his philosophy. I wonder if they're actually gonna gonna follow through with that. You have I don't any? know. It looks like if they do, they want to follow uh, Elon Musk's uh, philosophy when it comes to the Tesla, right? Let's make the expensive one first, and let's start making some of the cheaper ones later to prove the concept. Um, yeah. Not that Gordon Murray needs to prove any concept. I, I think he already did that thirty years ago. And then um, I guess just to close to close this off. Um, so the car the car has 650 horsepower, which is nothing to sneeze at, right? It's quite it's, it's quite a bit. But there's cars with more power, um, and he's not talking about performance figures at all. Do we no. think that this is going to be a fast car, a modern fast car, like in a modern context, fast car? I think there's no question about that. Yes, because sure, I mean you know, 650 horsepower. 10, 15 years ago was a huge number. Uh, 650 horsepower today, it's a big number, but it's not a huge number. Well, now, you know, you can even go and get a Demon with over 700 horsepower with a factory warranty. And this is not made by Ferrari or Lamborghini or Porsche or any of the big uh, high-performance guys. This uh, is made by uh, Dodge. Um, so this number is nothing special when it comes to the number itself. Yeah. Because there's plenty of the cars that, that can beat it. 150 horsepower. Yeah. But what makes this number extremely unique in this case is combined with the rest of the ingredients, the rest of the car, the, the weight of the car. And to be honest, you know, you, you get to a point that, uh, you have to ask yourself, when is it too much power? Because sure, you can throw a thousand horsepower, fifteen hundred horsepower. We have with the Bugatti Chiron, um, but when is too much? Too much? Are we just in it for the numbers game to see? Oh, you know, I, I produce a car with more horsepower than you, but it's it's how you actually use that power. Uh, how are you able to extract that power from the powertrain and stick it to the ground in the most efficient way possible? And um, you know, once you get up to the five to 600 brake horsepower uh, number, you're getting to the limit where anything above that, it starts to be, become more of a numbers game more than to an actual advantage on the vehicle itself. Um, well, and I think, I think that the weight has such a, an effect on also the performance. Um, absolutely. And I, think, and I think also one of the things that's maybe less thought about is in gear acceleration. I know, I know Mazda, for example, Mazda has their automatic, it's a six speed automatic. And a lot of people kind of criticize them for that because like, well, why didn't you go with the eight speed or a nine speed or a 10 speed? And they're like, you know, we thought about it. 
fuel economy gains weren't big enough to justify it and we get better in gear acceleration with the six speed. Um, I think that's one of the things that'll be, you know, actual felt and usable performance is differentness from, you know, test sheet data, right? But even, even if you are looking at test sheet data, right, here's, here's a, maybe the most important figure is the pounds per horsepower, right? So the T50 has, looking at my, my chart, 3.32 pounds per, per horsepower. Um, 3.32 pounds per horsepower isn't quite as good as, as a Chiron, but we are significantly better than a LaFerrari, right? We're 10% better than a LaFerrari, 25% better than a 720S, 55% better power to weight ratio than a C8 Corvette. I mean, we're talking big tough. cars here. I mean, we're talking that right now, if we take the Ferrari, the LaFerrari out of the equation, uh, when it comes to the middle segment of the high performance car, there's no question that the 720S is at the top of that benchmark as of right now. And right. it's 25% better than the guy at the top of the benchmark right now. And the C8 Corvette, well, we know that it's no sl uh, slouch either. Um, yeah, I think even when you, even when you account for, I mean, a lot of those, a lot of those are all, those are all fast cars, right? When you look, oh, yeah, no you when you look at the zero to 60 time, how much of that is dependent on the, on the launch control and the traction yeah. control? Yeah. I don't, I don't know, but I think that in gear, you know, looking at the pounds per horsepower, looking at the in gear acceleration, which is what you're going to feel while you're actually driving. I think that the T50 is going to be out of this world. And there's a couple more that I see on your chart that you haven't mentioned, which I think we should too. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I also, I also wrote down the 911, right? This, the, the new 911 Carrera S, which has 7.6 pounds per horsepower, right? That's, that's, that's more than twice. That's more than twice the weight per horsepower as a T50, right? And, and a new 911, like that's a fast car. It's a fast car. Yeah. Um, and then also the one that I was kind of surprised and I thought it was going to be even worse was, you know, the, the Miata, right? So Miata is 12.8 uh, pounds per horsepower. Again, going back to T50, T50 is 3.3. I mean, man, and it's going to be, it's going to be nuts. Well, I'm actually quite surprised by the Miata, to be honest, because it's 70, 74% of the T50 and I would have guessed it was going to be higher. That number would have been higher. That would have been my guess. Yeah. Um, but I guess it does speak at uh, just what a great little car the Miata is. I mean, sure, it's close to 75%, but um, on the flip side, the Miata is more than 75% cheaper than the T50. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it may, the, yeah, the T50 may be 74% better power to weight ratio, but it's, uh, it's a little bit more expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Just a little bit. I was, I was actually, I put the LaFerrari, not the P1 or anything, because I thought that the LaFerrari, you know, P1 is about the same power to weight ratio. I was really surprised by that. A 10% improvement in power to weight ratio over the LaFerrari. I didn't think that it was going to be able to, uh, I was surprised by that because the LaFerrari um, and, is and, and it's LaFerrari, it's also a V12, but it's a larger displacement V12 and it is hybrid assisted. 
Right. Uh, so yeah, it's it's a big, big, big improvement. So, well, let's let's move on to our uh, motorsport roundup. Um. So. I mean, all right. Like, my wife is telling me I have to be done. So. <laughs> well, we'll give the gist of the motorsport. I'll be I'll be quite brief on Formula One. Okay. So Formula One, quite brief. Uh, if you want to take a guess who won, you're probably right. Lewis Hamilton won again. Um, and that's pretty much uh, the gist of it. Actually, no. A um, couple of interesting things um, that happened to uh, the championship. Hamilton is still at the lead and has increased uh, his uh, lead in the championship. Verstappen is number two in the championship. Um more drama at Ferrari. They're still not able to get the car where they need to be um, this season. And then on top of that, uh, Charles Leclerc actually had to abandon uh, due to an engine issue. And then on the brighter side, uh, Vettel, he was not only drive voted driver of the day, um, but he was also pretty much voted not by F1, but by the general fan consensus that he was also the driver of the day and the uh, race engineer of the day. Race engineer uh, of the day. <laughs> race engineer of the day. Yeah, he he had, uh, I guess, um, uh, he was uh, branching out to other F1 opportunities. So he decided not only to drive the car, but also to be a race engineer for the day. And it panned out for him because uh, he was able to, to push those tires a lot. Has, has Ferrari completely abandoned their support of Vettel at this point? Uh, I wouldn't say yes, even though they recently came out saying that they are going to give him a new chassis. But um, um, somehow it just feels to me that they're just trying to say something nice in front of everybody, but uh, there's no support whatsoever left yeah. uh, for him. Um, uh, even I remember, you know, the thing with Ferrari, it's not the first time that a driver has left Ferrari because they were just not happy with their current situation. We saw this more recently with Fernando Alonso uh, when he was racing for Ferrari, that, saying that uh, the relationship that at least Alonso had with Ferrari was not nowhere near as bad as a relationship that right now exists within the team uh, and the driver. And it does beg the question, why? Uh, I know that Vettel has made quite a few mistakes over the last couple of years uh, when it comes to driving, but uh, is it to the point that the relationship is really truly broken down and to the point that everybody just seems to be, I mean, Vettel seems to be fed up with the team. The team seems to be fed up with him and it's more of, okay, let's just finish the season. Um, I'm going to try to do my best. Uh, oh, that's what we're hoping from uh, Vettel. And the team is like, we're going to give you, it seems what the bare minimum that you need to do your job and then we'll call it quits after that and and we'll have Carlos Sainz replace him next season. Um, no. I can't recall in recent years a relationship as bad as this one. Yeah, I'm I'm disappointed to see it degrade like it has. I don't Yeah, it's it's basically, you know, um, Ferrari has been chasing the championship for quite some time and they've actually, I think they hired the right people to achieve it. Um, especially, and you know, I am a bit biased because uh, actually for those of us who are listening, which 
and they don't know about this about me. I, I grew up, I was born and grew up in Spain. So I'm quite biased when it comes to uh, Fernando Alonso. I'm, I'm honest, I'm biased towards him. I do think that he is a fantastic driver. And when he signed with Ferrari, he really had a chance to win the championship. It didn't happen, um, mainly not because of him. Um, but I think that even when he left, Ferrari placed all their bets on on Vettel. You know, he was coming from Red Bull from winning uh, four championships, and he was the top dog at the time. And uh, I think that uh, part of the reason, and I'm just speculating here, but I think part of the reason of why the relationship is so broken down is because when Alonso was there, they realized that the reason that they did not win championship was mainly because of them. Uh, and what I mean them is uh, the team itself, not because of the driver. Uh, even still today, Alonso is still very loved the Scuderia, as well as uh, the Italian fans, the Tifosi. He's still very well remembered as a guy who could have delivered and didn't deliver because of Ferrari's fault. Uh, when it comes to uh, Vettel, uh, I think that the the feel by both the fans in Italy as well as the team is that they haven't been able to deliver the championship mainly because of Vettel, with the exception of this year, which they really have a pretty poor car. But the first couple of years, at least, that Vettel was with Ferrari, they had a good car, good enough to win a championship. And I think a lot of questions started uh, to be asked, not only by fans, but also by, by the Scuderia themselves, is did we hire the right guy? If we had another driver like Alonso or maybe Hamilton, we think that they could have won the championship. But why is not Vettel winning? And I'm, I'm not a... I, I don't hate Vettel. I don't think he's a bad driver. I actually don't think anybody in F1 is a bad driver. If you get to be in F1, you are a good driver. There's no questions about it. Uh, with the exception of, of Stroll. <clears throat> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think that's part of why the relationship is so broken is because the Scuderia has felt that it was more their Vettel's fault that they haven't won than the team itself. And they've tried many different things to try to see if they can get this uh, relationship uh, winning and it just hasn't happened. And uh, it just got to the point that it's completely broken down. I feel like, I feel like Verstappen has really been the driver of the year so far. Um, and I think, so looking at the points, right, Hamilton's at 132, Verstappen's next at 95, then Bottas at 89, then Leclerc at all the way down to 45. Like Verstappen is, with this truncated season, he's really the only one who has any chance of catching Hamilton. And that's, I, and I think Hamilton would have to have a DNF, right? He'd have to have a crash or a mechanical failure, and Verstappen would have to be perfect. But he's yeah. really taken that car beyond what it should be able to do. I mean, you look at his yeah. teammate who's sometimes struggling to score points and Verstappen is fighting for wins against Mercedes. It's impressive. Well, well, and that's, I would, for me, what's most impressive, yeah, it's not so much the big gap in difference there is between Verstappen and his teammate uh, Albon, but it's more that Verstappen is giving Mercedes a fight. And we actually clearly saw that not in this last weekend's race, but uh, the week before, uh, uh, the 70th anniversary of the Silverstone, you know, yeah. the race engineers were telling Verstappen, you have to slow down. We have to take care of the tires. I'm like, hey, we, we, and he's like, no, I'm not going to do that. 
we have a fighting chance of winning this thing. This is our only chance to beat the Mercedes. Yeah. I'm not going to just sit around and let them win. We're going to go for it. Yeah, that, that and it panned out. It panned out really good because he ended up winning the race. Right. Well, right, and he almost won. He almost won the earlier, um, so uh, English Grand. Yeah, the the, 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 the the first Silverstone race. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I have to. I do have to add that Hamilton has had extraordinarily good luck, uh, reliable. Oh yes. Right. I mean, and even even the first English Grand Prix where he finished, you know, crosses the line with a flat tire. Like this is he's had really good luck, but yes, I'm not. Look, I'm not a Hamilton fan. Um, you know, I don't. I don't dislike him, but I don't. You know, I have my I have my opinion on on Hamilton, and um, I, I I gotta say that I've I've not been on the Hamilton train before. But this this last race, he finished 24 seconds ahead of Verstappen. And he pitted on the last lap. I mean, this is this is a huge lead, especially coming from the week before where Verstappen won. I, yeah. I I have to say this is if that level of dominance continues, no one's got a shot. Yeah, and I think it's not, not only I'm the same way as you. Uh, I, I've never been a Hamilton fan. Uh, I do think he's a fantastic driver. Um, I don't think he is the best one out there uh, from the time of, from when he very first started racing until now, I think that there's been better drivers out there. He's been, his, his luck has been incredible, not only racing now with Mercedes, but when he left McLaren to go to Mercedes, nobody thought it was going to be the right decision. It turns out to be an extremely successful decision as we see right now, you know, six world championships on the way, pretty much securing his seventh world championship. Um, so uh, his luck is undisputable. Everybody knows that besides the talent that he has, he has also been extremely lucky, which has given him everything that he has right now. Right. But besides of him having an outstanding race uh, this last weekend, I think um, credit due also to the team. Um, part of the reason that I think makes Mercedes such a successful team nowadays is not only they have the best car, but they are also extremely fast and efficient in adapting the car whenever it needs to be adapted. And I think this race in Spain is a clear example of it. We know that the last two races, both of them in Silverstone, they really, really struggled with uh, tire degradation and wear. Um, and they were not the only ones who suffered. Um, there were many other teams that did, but they were, you know, as the top dogs, both Hamilton and Bottas, they really, really struggled with those higher temperatures and those tires. Um, in a matter of a week, they, they were able to resolve uh, and change the, the car to make sure that those problems would not happen again uh, this weekend, which didn't happen. And they knew that there was a higher chance of happening because now they were leaving the UK to go race in Spain where temperatures uh, could have potentially been higher than the ones that we saw in, in, in the UK. So I think it also speaks volume on how good the team the synergy, the integration of the team has within uh, themselves to make sure that they're always on point. Yeah. Um, but well, I guess uh, moving on. So we have moving on. Yes, that that wraps it up for F one. Right for for not for the rest of motorsports. So NASCAR is still shut down. They come back September fourth. WRC they restart also September fourth in Estonia. 
they, they had three races and then they, you know, they had to stop because of the COVID-19. Um, WC, they, they had a race, um, but the next one is, we're looking at Silverstone. They, they had the Silverstone on September 1st. The other big, the other big deal is, is with IndyCar. So we have the, the Indy 500 coming up on August 23rd. This is going to be a good race. Which, by the way, um, our listeners should know that even though the race um, it's happening on the twenty-third, um, it's going to be closed to the public. So, right. yeah, everything is going to be. It's just the cars and the teams that are going to be racing. Nobody, no spectators there. And qualifying actually took place this last weekend. Right. And yeah, I mean, and qualifying is like a week-long event for the Indy Five Hundred, but it is. Um, yeah. And something interesting too about qualifying when it comes to Indy is. It's nowhere near as important as, for example, F1. You know, if right. you take pole position in F1, you have a pretty good chance of winning the race. Um, in Indy, especially the Indy 500, it turns out to be quite the opposite. Most of right. uh, the guys who qualify in pole position don't end up race, uh, winning the race. So yeah, it's it's a, it's impossible to start from the lead and finish with the lead in, in at the Indy 500. Yeah. Um, right, and it's and it's actually a pretty big disadvantage to be at the front during the race, you want to be, you know, a couple spots back with a couple laps to go. That's where you really want to be. Stay out of trouble. Right. I think Scott Dixon, and he started off really well this, this season. Again, we got a truncated season, but I think he's actually in pretty much a similar position as Hamilton of, I don't know that anyone's going to be able to catch him. I'm not, I'm not talking in this particular race because really anyone could win the Indy 500, even Alonzo, right? I mean, even Alonzo down at, uh, what is he, 23rd? Um, uh, he qualified 26th. 26th, yeah. Yeah. Um, but to his defense, he did have a minor crash uh, the day before. And uh, actually, this also speaks volumes to the McLaren Aero team, which is uh, the team that Alonso is racing the Indy 500 this year. And, you know, 24 hours, they were able to put the car together. And I think there was still some, um, um, for, uh, at least from Alonso, there was still some reservations about pushing the car to its limit on qualifying. They just really wanted to get qualifying done, done and at least qualify, which is something that they failed to do last year. Well, he had a pretty good speed. I mean, he was, he was three miles an hour off the, the leader, but he's still, you know, he's, he's definitely competitive. Yeah. But it'll be a great race. Um, it'll be a great race. Yeah. Uh, let's see. What else do we got? We got MotoGP. MotoGP had a really great race this past weekend with the Austrian Grand Prix. They're kind of doing the same, same as F1 where they're, they're doing two races um, in the same location. So this coming week will also be in Austria, but this, this it was kind of a, it was kind of a crazy race. They had a lot of crashes throughout the race. Um, Ducati was able to hold off and, and come home for the win. Suzuki was right on their tail. Um, I'll be interested to see when uh, Marquez gets healed up if he's able to come in and make it a competitive season again. Um, but it was a pretty good race. If you have it recorded, it's worth watching. So, well. Hey, and I think that wraps up our motorsport yeah. section. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, we're planning on doing this podcast every week. If you like it, subscribe. We have a couple, we do have a couple sponsors. Um, we have Retromobile Designs. You can visit them, retromobiledesigns.com. They make really sweet 
car themed and motorcycle themed t-shirts. Um, we also have a business that I run. It's called Dave the Car Importer. Um, and I, I bring cars from Colombia and from Europe. Um, if you have a car that you want to import, I charge a small fee and I'll do everything for you to get that over. Um, Borja also has a business. If you want to talk about that. Yeah, so um, I run a, we're based out, well, I'm uh, located in uh, Utah and uh, I have a small auto repair shop uh, that uh, we do all sorts of, uh, you know, general maintenance and repairs. We also work on diesel vehicles uh, called Auto Pros. Um, we're located in down in Orem. Um, but, uh, but yeah, um, if you live in the Utah County area and need a repair um, uh, shop, we're, we're there. So Great. What's the best way for customers to, to find you? You can Google us, so you can call us. Our phone number is 801-874-0065. And you can also find us on Facebook. Um, uh, you can find us under Auto Pros Utah. Great. Well, if you like, if you like the content of today's podcast, go ahead and click that subscribe button and visit out, visit our sponsors and our businesses. It helps us, uh, you know, provide this content and do this podcast. So we actually really appreciate it. Um, and yep. Yeah, and we will talk to you next week. Thank you. Catch you next week. Thanks.